Welcome to the District Podcast, brought to you by the Spectator World Edition. I'm contributing editor Chadwick Moore, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Peter Wood. He's the president of the National Association of Scholars, and he's the author of many books, including recently 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, and Wrath, America Enraged. Peter is also an author at the Spectator World, where I highly recommend checking out all that he does there and everywhere else. In a piece for the magazine this week titled The False Mystery of Motives, Peter went through several of the horrifying items that littered headlines last week, not least of which included President Joe Biden, where he gave a speech in Atlanta, Georgia, in which he insinuated anyone who opposes his federal takeover of elections, that would be the so-called Voting Rights Act that uh, failed in the Senate, anyone who opposed that was, well, a Klansman, a racist, an extremist. A Confederate seditionist, even, trying to overthrow the United States government and uh, defeat democracy in general. It seemed like a little bit of sick poetic justice that immediately after Joe Biden made those comments, this is, of course, the president who declared that the greatest threat to America is white nationalism and white male extremism. Immediately after he made those comments, an actual extremist appeared. He went into a synagogue in Texas and he held a rabbi and his congregants hostage. The FBI and President Biden remain completely befuddled as to what motivated that Islamic terrorist attack, despite the man making his motives crystal clear, absolutely 100% crystal clear. And the administration continues to suggest that his targeting of a synagogue was just incidental, uh, had nothing to do with the crime. Uh Uh-huh, sure. Then, of course, in New York City, a black man by the name of Simon Marshall murdered an Asian woman in a seemingly random act of violence, at least that's what we're told it was, by pushing her in front of a subway train. In his piece, Peter writes, quote, Over the last year, we've had a rash of unprovoked subway and street assaults, including other instances of people being shoved onto the tracks. These are not Islamic attacks, but many great cases are of black assaults on Asians and whites. Police, presumably hoping not to inflame racial tensions, seldom comment on the motives, but it is safe to say that the escalation in Black resentment brought on by the Black Lives Matter, the 1619 Project, and diversity, equity, inclusion propaganda have played a part. They provide the permission that figures such as Simon Marshall are waiting for. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. I was really struck by that last passage that I read it occurred to me also how little I even think about motive when we hear about attacks such as this one recently in New York. And it's almost institutionalized at this point in media and in law enforcement to not address the motive. And that seems to create this impression in society that there's just a segment of people out there who are irredeemably violence who randomly will commit acts like this for no reason whatsoever. There's nothing we can do about it. Don't ask questions and uh, stay safe and good luck to you, which to me is uh, actual racism is what it might create. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little more about that, about about the motives in attacks like this and why we don't talk about it uh, at all. Well, let me start with the police commissioner, um, Kishant Sewell, who responded to Simon Marshall's uh, act by saying that it was a senseless act of violence. 
um, as though I, I guess he had a, a fit or something and happened to be pushing someone in front of the subway train. Uh, that's not only to deny that we know the motives, but it's to deny that there was a motive. It's just uh, something that happened, and therefore on we go with our lives. Uh, I think that every human act, almost every human act, is motivated by something, and it's not a great labor to figure out what that something is in most cases. The readiness to say that this is all uh, mental illness or only a madman would do it is a way of pushing the question of motive out of sight. So what are we to think that our society is just infiltrated with lots of crazy people who could do anything at any moment? Well, that's one way to lead your life. Uh, I, I live and work in New York City, so uh, I have to keep an eye out wherever I go as to who might be up to no good around me. But I don't treat that as a matter that uh, our society is uh, stark raving mad and it could happen to anybody anywhere. It's a matter of recognizing the people who are truly agitated. And the question here, I think, does come down to the racial tensions that are now uh, very prominent in at least some of our cities, in New York especially, uh, this uh, thought, which I don't profess to understand why young black males, in this case, it wasn't a young black male, the guy was in his 60s, uh, harbor this resentment against Asians, especially Asian women. Um, that's not the only targeted group, but it seems to be the one that gets uh, uh, the most attention. Um, it's not only males that are committing these acts. We had a subway pusher a few months ago who was a black woman, but there is a phenomenon here that the public authorities dare not address and the press generally remains completely oblivious to, which is that our racial tensions now manifest themselves almost daily, probably daily, uh, in acts of violence against strangers. I've uh, not seen it myself. Uh, I've heard about it from uh, close friends, people that I know who've been assaulted on the streets and fortunately not killed, but we're, we're talking about a generalized hostility between the races, which at its margins turns into acts of violence for which uh, the public authorities are unwilling to even acknowledge. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, the victim's race was very important. It was in all the headlines, Asian woman, which see, this is, seems to me a new phenomenon that, that the race of the Asian victim is so important. This was something that the media was about this time last year saying that there's this huge rise in hate crimes against Asian people. And that is because they said uh, President Trump's dangerous rhetoric around the coronavirus, calling it the China virus. And this was instigating hatred towards people of Asian descent. Well, then, of course, it became abundantly clear who was committing these attacks. And they didn't typically look like what you think of being a Trump supporter. Uh, and yet now we're still stuck in this media narrative of Asians are under attack. Now we know who's doing it, but they don't want to say. It wasn't that long ago that it was uh, and probably still going on. We just don't see the headlines. But Jewish people in New York 
especially very visibly Jewish people, Orthodox people, were being attacked randomly on the street. You know, I heard someone say once that they thought that that if th- these racial tensions, it's sort of Jews and Asians, two of the most what are perceived as most highly successful people in American society, groups in American society, that that's the reason why they might be being targeted. That it's a resentment against resources and, and what have you. Do, you. do you see that at all, that that could be why it's specifically Asians and, and Jews, I think probably still going on? Right. Well, uh, I didn't mention Jews in this particular article in New York, but uh, yes, Jews are a targeted group like Asians are here. Uh, And this goes back a while. Uh, Al Sharpton, early in his career, incited a deadly riot against uh, Korean grocers. So yes, I think there is the idea that uh, Asians and Jews are successful immigrant groups that may goad unsuccessful uh, blacks to uh, target them. But, you know, these are questions for which we probably could get answers if the press was sufficiently curious or if our uh, public authorities decided that uh, a little bit of applied social science here might be useful. They're afraid of the answer. They're afraid that what we'll find is that... uh, racial hatred within the black community is targeting these other minority groups. And uh, if that proved to be the case, as I think it is the case, uh, what do we do then? What what kind of intervention would work? Uh, We've just spent the last two and a half years uh, convincing ourselves that America is a racist uh, society, systemically racist, and the racists are the white guys. So what do you do when it's not the white guys, not the white nationalists or white supremacists who are engaged in a uh, intensive pattern of violence against other minorities, but rather it's the, the, the model victim group, the people who are supposed to be at the uh, uh, target end of all these attacks who are in fact the aggressors. Now, I, I don't propose that I've got an answer to that, but I think that to get to an answer, you first have to recognize the problem. Yeah, and it is people are. I, I'm, I always just wonder. I, obviously, anyone, you and anyone listening to this is is aware of a lot of this stuff. But how are people even still buying this? And I, I would because when all evidence to the contrary, when you see in the headlines what's going on, and people are still buying this narrative. For, for example, the NYPD now all of their counterterrorism training is all exclusively devoted towards. Uh, uh, basically white nationalists, like white men terrorists, of which there are probably zero in New York City. And, uh, you know, yet still we have this alum, this incident from an Islamic terrorist in Texas. Since 9-11, there's been something like eight Islamic terrorist attacks in New York City. Yet the powers that be are still trying to manufacture this narrative of um, evil white men. And yet we can't find them anywhere, really. What's the best thing they have is the January 6th people who uh, trespassed into the Capitol that day? No, I, I, I'm thinking that the the problem here is one in which the paid law enforcement officials want to keep their jobs. And they may be just cynically saying these things in order to avoid being caught in the, uh, the, the maelstrom of attacks that come when People are accused of making invidious racial distinctions. So 
First, we, we refuse to recognize that uh, Islamic terror is usually committed by uh, immigrants or visitors from uh, South Asia and the Middle East. And so we don't want to do any racial profiling. So we have to ignore that and go through, you know, security theater at the airports and everywhere else. And that extends into the mistraining of our law enforcement personnel who have to go through this elaborate pretense that uh, the dangers that they face or that we all face in this society or from uh, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or uh, some fragmented uh, extremist white groups, which may or may not actually exist. But um, the, uh, the reality of it is that the dangerous white extremist, the, like the guy who blew up the Oklahoma City office uh, government building and killed a whole lot of people, including children, are just so extremely rare. Um, so what do we make of that? The, uh, the reality of this is that uh, the capacity to commit horrific acts of violence is to be found among all people of all races, um, not usually among women, although women are also sometimes engaged in these kinds of activities. Uh, but there are patterns to be discerned. And the pattern that if we are least willing to admit is that there are substantial numbers of black males in New York City and in other places too, but we're talking about New York, uh, that commit acts of violence. Some of them are um, just to scare people and like coming up behind someone and pushing them or tripping them on the stairs. Uh, that kind of thing happens just all the time. But when it escalates to the level of murdering strangers, uh, then uh, there's a particular pathology here that we need to look at and name. Yeah, it's. I was speaking to a... Um, uh... 17-year vet of the NYPD the other day, and he was telling me that the... So the NYPD is no longer to use race in their description of suspects, even in internal communications. So if they're looking for a suspect, say an Asian person was just beat up, they have to say, you know, green jacket, orange shoes. They can't say his race. But he said, if it's an Asian victim, we all know we're looking for a black guy. It's just unspoken, which was interesting that he said that, you know, they're not allowed to uh, say it. But uh, you mentioned... Uh, the so the, the the this narrative that that gives people permission to act out and and the kind of a motive for some of these crimes might be the kind of psychological or emotional rewards you get by by causing harm onto someone that you are told is hurting you or oppressing you sort of ties in line with an area that you're an expert in which is the 1619 project you of course wrote the book 1620 I was always wondering why was what was it about the 1619 project that exploded as it did because this isn't necessarily a new idea in history classes that America was founded on slavery and racism and all this other stuff and yet the 1619 project we're still talking about it and it's being taught in schools did it do something different than this sort of slow creep in education this kind of illiberal history that we've that are so familiar with already in our schools well, I, I think the, the two closely related elements that made it different were that uh, it had a very well-organized publicity campaign behind it. 
with the authority of the New York Times. And it also had a, a vast amount of money that even the New York Times had not previously invested in any of the causes that uh, it seeks to promote. So uh, you know, the, the short version of the story was that the New York Times was all in in trying to promote the uh, Donald Trump as a stooge of Vladimir Putin. The uh, Mueller investigation is going to nail that down. In uh, the late spring of uh, 2019, the Mueller investigation came apart. The wheels fell off. It was clear that something that the Times had banked on heavily for years was no longer operative. And that was going to be their tool to unseat Trump. So they held a, a, a powwow, I'll, I'll use a, a, a Native American word, <laughs> uh, in, in which they sat down and said, well, what are we going to do now? How are we going to get Trump? Well, they did have a project that was in the pipeline. They hadn't been making that much of it. Nicole Hannah-Jones, a sort of black celebrity writer, had proposed in January of 2019 that she wanted to do a, a, a special memorial project on the arrival of slaves at Jamestown, Virginia in August of uh, 1619. Well, there's fishiness to that story, but just taking it at face value, the Times decided at that point, the senior editors were, okay, we will go all in on this. This will be our new narrative. And um, so when the 1619 project came out, a special issue of New York Times Magazine on August 18th of that year, um, it uh, was coupled with an announcement from the Pulitzer Center that they were going to turn this into a curriculum. Actually, they already had begun to do that and sell it to the nation's schools, not actually sell it because they were perfectly willing to give it away for free. The Times uh, didn't do a, just a once and done magazine. It also had a separate newspaper supplement that day. And then onward for the next six months, several times a week, there would be full page, sometimes two page advertisements in the Times promoting the 1619 project. In February of uh, uh, 2020, they did a, a full minute advertisement. I think it went with the Super Bowl, but it might have been one of those other big. Uh, uh, anyway, it was a lavishly produced uh, visual summation of the starting moments of the 1619 project. And that too got rolled into the print advertising campaign. Um, we're talking about. Uh, a PR venture here in the many millions of dollars. I wouldn't be surprised if it's in the tens of millions. So is there something different about the 1619 project? Yes, uh, you, you could find, you st can still find uh, people before Nicole Hannah-Jones who were worked up about the arrival of the White Lion, the British pirate ship that brought the slaves. It's in standard histories. People have known about it forever. Uh, but to turn it into a cause celeb required uh, a vigorous effort, which took a lot of money, and it took a, a professional organization, the Pulitzer Center, to promote it. They, they got the teachers' unions in on it. They got major urban school districts like Chicago and Buffalo to uh, 
formally adopted as part of the way they were going to teach history from now on. And uh, so it had all that behind it. And then one more thing that sort of completes that story is that um, after George Floyd died in police custody in uh, Minneapolis, uh, we almost immediately had the outbreak of riots that were promoted by Black Lives Matter and other groups. Um, the At that point, Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, tweeted out that she was proud to call these riots the 1619 riots. And if you go back and look at the pictures of uh, statues of national heroes being toppled, like George Washington, they're spray-painted 1619 on them. So the 1619 project blended in with the explosion in uh, racial animus that uh, we saw in the summer of uh, 2020, and which was uh, fully endorsed by people like uh, our vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, and Nancy Pelosi and others who said, yeah, this is legitimate. Um, when we got to the issue of uh, the social distancing and the shutdowns that had turned most Americans into uh, uh, people living in close quarters and confined to home, but we weren't going to treat rioting in the streets as uh, something that violated those rules. So special exceptions had to be extended to make the 1619 riots a legitimate enterprise, which at least one political party thought was promoting a goal that they favored. Uh, did it play a role in unseating Donald Trump from the presidency? Probably. No, no one knows for sure on that. But uh, the answer to your question here is that it starts with the desire of the New York Times uh, to pursue a particular political agenda for which they're willing to commit major resources monetarily and to which they have attached a public relations campaign. And when all of that matures, it's ready to blend right in with the ferocious attack on civil order that became the, the riots of the summer of uh, 2020, in which we're now supposed to ignore and pretend didn't happen. Um, so what's the residue of this? Well, one thing that we know is that the 1619 Project not only made its way into many of the nation's public schools, but that it became one of the building blocks of the uh, the new racial animus agenda that, that desire to divide Americans by race, make whites feel uh, guilty, make blacks feel resentful, and set these two groups at each other's throats. Uh, that's critical race theory, uh, of which you know Nicole Hannah Jones, the principal author of the 1619 Project, was steeped in. Uh, it's sometimes got the more euphemistic name of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, but it's all about turning Americans against one another on the basis of identity groups. Uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's own declared goal for this is to uh, win support for uh, monetary reparations for slavery, uh, which is uh, used to be such a marginal concept, people just laughed at it. It's no longer laughed at. It's, it's certainly in the political discussion now 
of uh, what uh, the Democratic Party is willing to do in order to lock down the black vote, which is becoming less reliable. So uh, the, the tensions within the uh, American left over how to maintain power when part of its narrative has become uh, unpopular uh, play into how this is working as well. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned. I remember when a lot of us were watching the riots, the George Floyd riots, the 1619 riots, plenty of people were thinking this is going to work well for Trump because people are going to see this disorder and chaos and it's tied to one side of the political spectrum and want to vote against that. But that is maybe, but you said perhaps that it actually did work in their favor. Would that be just to energize black voters to get out to the polls uh, or how else could it have worked? Well, I mean, these are the kinds of questions in which as a social scientist, I would want, other social scientists to take a close, hard look at, and that hasn't happened. But here's a off-the-cuff view of this matter. Um, the efforts to unseat Trump had led to very frustrating results for the American left. The more they smeared him, attacked him, impeached him, the less traction they seemed to get. Uh, it played well with the press, but then the press was being recognized as sort of wholly in on it. So the, the American elite didn't like Trump. Trump's populist force was uh, undeterred by the sneering of the elite. So something more needed to be done. Uh, COVID comes along and provides a splendid opening for uh, some trickery on the left, whereby uh, the ways in which we conduct elections were suddenly uh, on hold and uh, open to revision. And there was this issue of what's the, what, what's the basic service that the government can provide? Well, it's, it's public order, it's safety. And when the government proves itself unable to respond in a meaningful way to those sorts of provocations, it makes people uncomfortable, uncertain, now, if Trump had responded to the uh, the George Floyd riots with uh, a strong hand of intervention, uh, he would have been attacked in another direction as uh, usurping the rights of local authorities. But he made the deliberate choice to stand back and said, no, these are problems which the, the states and the cities need to address. First of all, I'll go and send in people to protect a federal courthouse but I'm not going to be uh, taking the place of the civil authorities in, in the state of Oregon or Michigan and so on. So I think that did leave an opening for people on the left to say, well, what good is Trump? He blusters, he says he's going to take care of these problems, but look what's happening. So in a in a odd sort of way, I think that um, the riots not only gave enthusiasm to the left radicals, um, only a small portion of them being black, but it, it gave a lot of uh, pause to the suburban moms and like were wondering whether Trump is able to deliver basic safety to my family, my home, my schools. And the answer seemed to be no. Uh, Trump stood back at a time when he should have engaged. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. 
now, with the what is what was behind this Voting Rights Act that that just now uh, failed to come up to a vote in the Senate? You know, they gave it the nice name of the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, tied to imagery of the civil rights movement and all of this. What was really behind it, and what what what, what did they hope to accomplish with it? What would it have done, also? Well, uh, I'll go way out on a limb here. Uh, what it would have done was. Uh, to turn into a more or less permanent system the kinds of chicanery that were used to swing the uh, 2020 presidential election. Uh, Among the more prominent things that it would do would be to ensure that the uh, uh, absentee balloting expansion would be a permanent feature. Now, the voting rights here would be the rights of people who might not have a real eligibility to vote because they happen to be dead or they happen to have moved out of state or they happen to be uh, illegal immigrants. But if we're sending out blank ballots to all sorts of people for whom you have a name and address uh, with no guarantees that those ballots are going to be ascertained as validly voted by real voters, uh, we have a problem. (laughs) And the problem is that voting fraud has uh, just been handed uh, an open door to continue on down this path. Now, I'm among those, not everybody who listens to this podcast are going to be, who think that the amount of uh, electoral misbehavior in the 2020 election was decisive or so in some states than in others. Uh, But whether you think that it was decisive in that election doesn't matter so much as the fact that the Democrats think it was decisive because they're fighting tooth and nail to replicate what they did in 2020 in perpetuity. Uh, This Voting Rights Act is basically a voting fraud act, uh, and it's uh, cynically using issue of race as a way to try to sneak in the... uh, procedures that were employed to uh, win national office in uh, 2020. Now, that that includes uh, many tens of thousands of blank ballots sent off to people and returned, but returned by whom? By people that are euphemistically called um, ballot harvesters, people who go out in the community and collect these things. One thing we know when people vote, uh, there's a record of their having voted, which means there's also a record of who hasn't voted. And those are ballots that are ripe for the stealing. That is, in in any particular community, if you know that uh, somebody at that address has not voted for years on end, you can probably count they're not going to vote this time either. And uh, then their ballot can be usurped and filled in to fit whatever candidate you wish to promote. Well, there are many pieces to how mischief was employed in the 2020 election. I don't think this is going to be profitable to try to go through a long list of them. But the essential thing is that the uh, John L. Lewis Act uh, is an attempt to make sure that those procedures now have the force of federal law. Uh, The one other thing that it does and I think this is really crucial, is that it nationalizes the voting procedures. Uh, 
Our constitution leaves that to the states, and this would take it away from state legislatures and uh, make it a matter that the um, U.S. government is able to say who can vote when, where, how, how, under what conditions, how should those votes be counted. All those things which were at the discretion of local communities where people really care about these things are uh, now in the hands, if this legislation were to pass, they would be in the hands of the, the federal government. The, the left-wing bureaucracy and their political masters in Congress. Right. All right. Well, Peter Wood, thank you so much again for joining us and check out his work at Spectator World and also buy his books. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available. 